Well, if you're there in First Thessalonians, then let me just let me just pray one more time. I I debated should I should I pray uh, about the sermon with Mike or just do it on its own. So I'm just going to do it on its own. So let's pray one more time. I really need God's grace, Father. We thank you for your grace today, Lord. Thank you that your people have come today with hearts that are ready and expectant to hear your word. And uh, we ask, Lord, that uh, everything that we hear, everything that we say will be uh, honoring to you, that you be glorified. Uh, even as we're speaking about the subject of glorifying your word, Lord, pray that you'd help us now. Give us ears to hear, minimize distractions, remove distraction from our hearts and from our minds. Whatever we have going on, we'll always have something going on. And so we pray, help us, Lord, to take our thoughts captive right now and to set them aside and to focus on your word now. Give us the grace to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this uh, section of Scripture has always been one of my absolute favorite passages in the Pauline uh, corpus, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, just because of the beauty of the language that he employs when he's talking about the propagation and the proclamation of the Word of God and of the gospel. So today's message has everything to do with the ministry of the word. In a sense, uh, as my sermon title is really designed to do, to capture the yearning, the aching, the desire, the heart of the Apostle Paul for God to glorify his word. Uh, There is a lot involved in that desire. It's uh, not just one thing. Uh, It is a multifaceted desire because the ministry of the Word of God is a multifaceted enterprise. It doesn't just come in one avenue. It doesn't just come by way of one venue. It's not just expository preaching like you're seeing me do here. It's not just evangelism like you're seeing with Mike and others going out. It's the ministry of the Word of God that flows through all of us in the church. In whatever way that comes, whether it's through personal encouragement, through personal devotion, through the teaching of the Word and the preaching of the Word and the advancing of the Word and the, and the missions aspect of the Word. Whatever it is, all of it, in the totality of it all. Paul wants to see the Word of God advance. I'm grateful for all of it. I'm grateful for the, I'm grateful for the high academician that sits behind the cubicle in the seminary that no one knows that's figuring out thorny theological issues of the text, uh, some grammarian somewhere that's figuring out how to use prepositions in the Greek New Testament, all the way down to the last member of the church who takes a verse to someone in need and ministers that verse in the church. All of it. This is the ministry of the Word. And this is what the Apostle Paul is focused on here. He wants to see the Word of God advancing. Now, this is what's interesting. Notice when he says here, pray that the Word of the Lord would spread. Now, we have to define very quickly. When he says the Word of the Lord, the logos of the kurios here, what what is he talking about? The Word of God meaning the Bible? Uh, The Word of God meaning what Paul has written, the New Testament? Is he referring to uh, only the message that refers to Jesus Christ? So what does it mean, the word of us? Is it comprehensive or is it specific? 
Now, I would say here it is a little bit more specific than just the general concept of the Word of God. I think it has to do primarily with the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when it says the Word of the Lord, number one, that lagos there, halagos, is really more like the message of the Lord. And then the word Lord, kurios, is referring not to God in the general sense, the triune God of Scripture, but the word Kurios, as is most often the case in Paul's writing, is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he could be, in effect, saying, uh, pray that the message of our Lord Jesus Christ will spread. And so that's what he has in his purview. Now, there is a parallel to this, if you want to look over to 1 Thessalonians. It's no different than what he's already expressed of what's already happening. He uses the same exact phrase in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. And let me read that to you. He says, for the word of the Lord, same phrase, has sounded forth. Literally there, the word literally means echoing forth. It is redounding. It is reverberating forth from you. Who is the you? The you is the Thessalonian church, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith is towards God has gone forth. And so what happens is is that the propagation of the gospel through the Thessalonian church, what happens is that that leads to an axiomatic proof of their faith. They are, in fact, in the faith by the propagation of the faith through them. Now, Uh, The book of Acts is really a book dedicated and devoted to this very phenomenon, and that is the spread of the Word of God. Let me give you some texts. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The Word of God kept spreading. No matter, you know, and if you know anything about chapter 6, you understand that in chapter 4, chapter 5, already the Word of God has experienced significant opposition. So for him to say the Word of God kept spreading, what it's saying is that beyond chapter 5, overcoming the obstacles and the hurdles of chapter 5, the arrest of the disciples and that, beyond that, the Word of the God, nevertheless, it continues to advance. And what does that look like? The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And as many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Chapter 12, verse 24. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Isn't that amazing? Uh, That really goes back to the language of multiplication, by the way. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where... God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Now that language of, that, that, that language of, the, of the commission there is, is, is spiritual. Spiritual. It's no longer that uh, the main business of the church is to procreate, meaning physically through children, but now it's procreate spiritually. That is through disciples. And that is how God's kingdom will be built. Acts chapter 13, verse 49. The word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. That's amazing. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. What an encouraging word that is. That it's spreading mightily and prevailing. And so again, the language of prevailing is especially uh, valuable, especially uh, uh, precious to those that understand the hostility, the opposition, and the persecution associated with 
spreading the word of the Lord. And so even in this context, we're going to look at persecution. So in, in, in essence, what Paul, what Paul is telling us here in this passage is he's giving us something of the view of the foundation, the context, and the reality of spreading and glorifying the word of God. What is the foundation? Well, let me just say the foundation is this. Glorifying the word through prayer. See that in the text? Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread. So it begins with a, on a spiritual note. It begins by, by saying that in order for us to engage in this, we have to first understand its spiritual dynamic, that what we are involved in is a spiritual enterprise. Not surprisingly, we begin on the spirit, we end on the spirit. We begin on the request to engage in spiritual warfare. That's what prayer is, by the way. Storming, right? The, the, the gates of hell with the, with, with, with the prayers of the saints, right? And, and where does the text end? Look at verse 3. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And so the reason why the ministry of the Word of God has to begin and end with prayer is because this is spiritual what we're involved in. This is a spiritual dynamic. The message itself is spiritual. It is a supernatural message uh, called the gospel. That's exactly what it is. And really, Jesus is the one who introduced us to this whole dynamic that when you take up the Word of God to spread the Word of God, that you will and you must expect opposition. That's why Paul needs prayer. It was Jesus who said in John 15, verse 20, he says, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will keep yours also. So the pattern of discipleship follows the paradigm of Christ himself. Now, Paul seeks for two aspects here, two things in this prayer, which we're going to call the growth of the word and the glory of of the word. And so first is the growth of the word. And there you see that in the word captured here, the spread of the word. He says, pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. And really this growth, we could have said, well, I try to keep the G's together, you know, growth, glory. It's, it's nice. I don't want to break up the symmetry, but the alliteration is not as important as what's really behind the term here, treko. That, that Greek word literally means to run. And so what, what Paul is saying is that pray for us that the word of God would run. Don't you like that? I like that because I'm in the word business and I want to see the word of God running, flowing, spreading rapidly, quickly. And so on a practical level, Paul prays for the practical advancement of the Word of God. Where's this rooted from? Where's this all coming from? I would submit to you that where it's coming from is Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 9. Matthew chapter 28, we know there, verses 19 and following, that is where Jesus gave His church a great commission that they would spread the Word of God, that they would proclaim this message to the ends of the earth. Because uh, Jesus speaking as one who had all authority and on the basis of his authority, we go out in all the world. We don't need a permit. We have somebody with all authority who's telling us, go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the gospel. But it's also on a personal level coming from Acts chapter 9 because there the apostle Paul was also personally commissioned by God to advance the gospel. 
There's the practical aspect of this. Practically, we want the Word of God to grow. We want to make disciples. We want to preach the Word. We want to evangelize the Word. And this is going to happen both through written, spoken, and other forms of media, we could say. Did they have media in the New Testament? Well, maybe they didn't have lights like this. These lights are real bright, by the way. They didn't have lights like this or cameras or, you know, cell phones doing live streaming. Yikes. Anyway, uh, you know, they didn't have soundboards and, you know, they didn't have websites and stuff like that. But they did have media. Gospels were first disseminated, disseminated as tracts. They were handed out as media to the world. And so whether it is written or spoken, uh, the, the, the word is to be advanced through practical means, practical effort. But let's get to the glory of it. I can stay forever there, but let's get to the glory of the advancement. When I say glory, I'm speaking of the quality of the word because he says that the word of the Lord would, 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 would spread rapidly. And then he uses the word that maybe you didn't expect him to use, that the word of God would be glorified. Uh, the concept of like you and I being glorified, that conjure up certain thoughts. The concepts of the Word of God being glorified, magnified, to me, uh, takes us down the, the, the road of speaking of the quality of the Word of God, right? We want the Word of God to be honored. We want the Word of God to be honored among the people. And so therefore, we want to make sure that the quality of the Word that is going out is biblical. So I have a slew of passages that I want to take you to. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Those go together. That's an easy way for you to remember a passage or passages of Scripture that go together, 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. They both speak of the same thing in the same exact verses. Verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2. It doesn't get any easier than that. So look at verse Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. We see the quality of the ministry of the Word as something that we have to take serious he says let a man regard us in this manner as servants of christ and stewards of the mysteries of god that same stewardship by the way is exactly what paul told timothy to do in first uh, uh, timothy chapter 6 verse 20 he tells timothy timothy guard the deposit that was entrusted to you what is the deposit what are the mysteries of god what is he talking about what he's talking about is the official apostolic teaching of the church that is the deposit it's like the faith that was delivered to them. And that deposit, that body of doctrine was to be protected. And it, we use the language here, it was to be stewarded. There's a stewardship, don't you know, that comes with the word of God. You brothers and sisters, me, we have been entrusted the word that you hold in your hand. We can extend it out to the whole Bible for, for now. This is, a, this is a deposit that has been given to you. And it has been entrusted to you so that you will handle it right. You will present it right. You'll teach it right. You'll divide it right. What about 2 Corinthians? He says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish 1 Corinthians. Verse 2 says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And so that gets into the personal ability and integrity of the person disseminating the message. That that person needs to be trust, trustworthy who's going to handle the word of God because it is such a weighty, heavy gr uh, a thing, great gravity that comes with that responsibility. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry... As we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things because of shame. 
Not, what's he talking about? Not walking in craftiness or, and then he crystallizes what he's talking about, adulterating the word of God. What is he saying? What he's saying there, by adulterating the word of God, what he's saying is that we do not handle the word, the ministry of the word, for the sake of sordid gain, financial gain. You know, like the stuff you see on television when you turn on the televangelist and there he is saying, you know, sow your seed, send in your money and, you know, get your miracle. Yeah, right. The only miracle that's going to happen is just the miracle of how stupid people are to give you money. That's the miracle. But that's not what we're called to do. That's what he calls uh, the, the hidden things because of shame. That's craftiness. That's adulterating the word of God. But what does he say? He says, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so there, the Apostle Paul is saying that the ministry of the Word of God is to be conjoined with sincerity. It's to be conjoined with, uh, 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 with uh, uh, integrity. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Paul was committed not only to faithfully proclaim the Word of God, but also to divide the Word of God rightly and accurately. He was committed, as Acts will go on to say, to preach the whole counsel of God and then to faithfully entrust the Word of God to others. Brothers and sisters, don't you see? This is how God is building His church. This is how God is building His spiritual organism, through the propagation of the truth and then through the passing on of that truth to one another. Everything from you teaching one another Everything from members in the church instructing and edifying each other, uh, uh, instructing and you know in the home, instructing and teaching in the home, fathers instructing their families, mothers instructing their children. All of that word ministry is the passing on of the baton, if you would, all the way up to ministry. And this was Paul's ultimate passion. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. This is what drove him. This was the impetus that drove him. This was what made him tick in the ministry. He had to fulfill this. This is something he had to accomplish. And verse 28 says, we proclaim him. And boy, I, just, I, I better keep going because I want to proclaim him right now. <laughs> and what he meant when he said that. Because everything is there. He proclaimed him. That's the essence of the ministry of the word is Christ. He says, admonishing every man. Notice that, brothers and sisters. Admonition means the ministry of the word of God. The word of God is abstract, is it not? It is abstract in the sense the word of God is not a material thing, of course. It's an idea. It's words. It's abstract. It is immaterial. But don't ever think that that lets us off the hook to get into real, practical, tangible ministry. You see, we're not just to be like dwelling in the clouds in our minds. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just intellect for intellect's sake. No, no, no. It's for admonishing. It's for actually going up to one another and actually applying the word to each other, even down to the way that we exhort admonish and encourage one another. He says, teaching every man with all wisdom, be careful of any ministry of the word that does not teach. Be careful of any ministry of any word that does not teach. 
Uh, you could preach and not teach. You ever seen that? I've seen that, you know, not to keep going back to what you see on TV, but, you know, that's maybe an exaggerated presentation of that. You could get a guy up there who's doing a lot of talking. You can get somebody up there that's doing a lot of philosophizing. You can get somebody up there that's doing a lot of relating. You can get a guy that's doing a lot of therapeutic sort of, uh, you know, uh, verbal exercise or whatever. You can get somebody up there with an incredibly magnetic personality that draws a lot of people to themselves. But I always had, I always, you know, let's tell Trisha this. When we used to visit, when we didn't have a church long ago, we were visiting in church. I always get in the car and say, oh, that was nice. That was great. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought it was nice too. And then I turned to her and I asked her in the car, what did you learn? What did you learn? Did you learn anything at church today? Or did it all just feel good, sound good, and, 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 and you, you know, it was a good vibe. Was that all it was? Because if that is all that it is, it is a counterfeit uh, word of the ministry. The word of the ministry involves didaskalos, teaching. You got to teach, right? Which presupposes you got to know. Which presupposes you got to know what you know, <laughs> right? What is the faith? What is the doctrine? In order to teach every man, you need to know something about uh, theology and the Word of God and rightly dividing the Word of truth and all these things, and we can go on and on and on and on. It's important for anyone, especially, and here I'm going to narrow it down, guys, to the teaching ministry of the church. So that may mean somebody who teaches in Sunday school, someone that teaches the children, somebody that preaches from the pulpit. You've got to know your, uh, you gotta, I was going to say you've got to know your stuff, but you, I guess you do. You've got to know your stuff. You've got to know some stuff. You know, you ought to be exposed to systematic theology. You need to be exposed to church history. You need to be exposed to exegesis. You've got to read a commentary or two. You need to know how to use the tools of the trade. Those kinds of things. It's not that everybody has to be a, a Greek or Hebrew scholar, but if you're going to take up the Word of God, you need to be able to rightly divide the Word of God. Or else you can make a real mess. I mean, I remember when I first started my preaching ministry. You ready? I don't even think Felix remember this. Uh, I've known Felix since I was little, but I started a Bible study in a shoe store. No lie. <laughs> and uh, this guy had a shoe store, you know, and he said, hey, let's do a Bible study. This was in Orange County, Orange County California. And he said, Let, let's do a Bible study in a shoe store. You teach it because you like to talk about it so much. <laughs> so I said, all right, I'll teach it. Well, I started preaching and before long, you know, we had 20, 25 people coming to this little Bible study. I thought, oh man, look at that. People are coming, they're listening to me. Wow. And then I went to a church where I was uh, really, really uh, brought up sharp on just how little I knew about anything. <laughs> I went to a, you know, I went to a church where really nobody knew me, and, and it was just big mega church. And then I went to a smaller church, and at this smaller church, you know, there's guys walking around with their Greek and Hebrew Bibles, and they're seminary trained. And I start talking to these guys, and the more they talk, the more I understood. I don't know what in the world I'm talking about. I immediately canceled the Bible study and told my friend I can never teach again. And I did not teach. I probably didn't teach in any formal setting for uh, probably another seven years. Because I was so, dis well, I was discouraged. But, but, but more than that, I was so sobered to the reality that, hey, you've got to know what you're talking about if you're going to open up the Word of God in front of people. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, I think we need that in order to teach you, look at what it says, for, uh, Colossians one twenty eight. In order to teach, you've got to do it with all wisdom. You see that there? 
And that wisdom, by the way, does not just mean you've got to know a lot. Wisdom's a little different, isn't it? Wisdom means that there's prudence involved. Wisdom means that you need to understand how to do it with a, you got to do it with a certain sagacity. You need to, you need to do it with a certain hand. You got to have wisdom. Wisdom is, 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 is when you have come to understand things that will equal good and righteous living so that you're able to instruct somebody in the way that they should live, not just the way they should think. Big difference. You've got to be able to do that with wisdom. And it says, so that we might present every man complete in Christ. That's the goal of this all. My goal up here, week after week, in Sunday school, or what, whatever and whatever I'm doing, I've got no time for Van Til group. I've got no time for Klein group. <laughs> Trust me. But I've got to do it. <laughs> because I am, I am dead set on presenting every man complete in Christ. I want you to know something about how to defend your faith. I want you to know something about biblical theology. And so this is why we do what we do, so that you will be found complete. Look at verse 29. For this purpose I labor striving. You see that there? Where's the striving? And so just remember, when pastors are doing what they're doing in ministry, you need to ask the question. In all the striving that's going on in the church, financially, the networking of the church, the media of the church, the platform of the church, whatever, the aesthetics of the church, the building projects of the church, okay? And all that striving, how much of that striving is dedicated to teaching? I want to know about that. How much striving is dedicated to teaching? You know what's beautiful about all this? Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. It's all about duplication. You need to, the pastor in particular here, has to be in the business of duplicating himself. Teaching everything he knows to others so that they can continue the duplication process. And so that's what we ought to be. And this can happen in all sorts of different ways. Like I said, this happens in the family. This happens in a more formal setting. Let's say Acts chapter 9, the school of Tyrannus. There, the apostle Paul, it says, he grabbed some disciples. He pulled them away. They got into a more formal setting, and he instructed them. Oh, can you imagine? Oh, I'd give anything. Just be a fly on the wall in there. Of course, I'd have to learn the language. But anyway, so just be fascinating to know that. But this is what Paul did. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts again. Well, anytime you're talking about the spread of the Word of God, you're automatically getting into the infancy stages of the church. What was happening in the book of Acts? What was happening in the early church when the church was being founded? That is the New Covenant Church. In a technical sense, the church has always existed. Uh, this is, uh, you can see this, for example, when I'm preaching at UNT and people tell me, yeah, but before Christianity... You know, that statement doesn't exist, right? <laughs> there was no before Christianity. Adam and Eve walked with the triune God of the Bible. I mean, what are you talking about, right? Uh, it's not like we get to Christ and there's a new God. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, but the new covenant church, when it began, this is what was going on. Acts chapter 20, verse 18. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia... How I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials that came upon me through the plots of the Jews. That's right, because if you've been following the ball 
uh, all the way back to the very beginning, especially Acts chapter 15, 16, 17. Paul, every town, the Jews are chasing him at every single location. He's got you know, to go out the, through a window in the, in the wall. They gotta, he's got to escape, you know, James Bond style or something. Everywhere he goes, he's, he's on the run. How he says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. See that? The teaching you public, uh, uh, he says, teaching you publicly from house to house. It's everybody, folks. This is why the church has to have a policy. Nobody falls through the cracks. Every home, every member, every father, mother, and child needs to be getting the word of God. Everybody needs to be discipled in these things. And, um, and he says, I solemnly testified both to the Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? But as I mentioned at the outset, when the word is growing, whether practically or where the word is advancing in, in terms of it, uh, the quality, whatever you want to focus on, it's always going to come with opposition. If you're still there in the book of Acts, stay there. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Everywhere Paul went, he faced opposition, opposition to the Word of God. So in a sense, it's almost like this is the context. If prayer and engaging in, in, in a spiritual battle through prayer, if that is the foundation of it all, the spiritual enterprise of spreading the Word, then persecution is its context. And that is certainly true down to this very day. Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he says, Now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. How many people want to go out to a ministry like that? Nobody likes the unknown. Paul didn't like the unknown. It's kind of scary. What's going to happen to me in Jerusalem when I get there? Am I going to be safe? Am I going to get arrested? Somebody going to wrap me off? Is I going to go get the authorities like they did to Jason? Haul me off to prison? Am I going to get beaten again? This is all real for Paul. And he says, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, (laughs) saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So uh, Paul knew what he was getting into every, every time he went somewhere. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. You cannot have indomitable missionary unless you have an indomitable perspective. What is the indomitable perspective? Don't love your life. Now you can go anywhere. As soon as you adopt that mentality, boy, you could go to the Muslim world and not care what happens to you. You know, people will think you're absolutely out of your mind. You want to talk about opposition? You're going to get opposition from places that you thought you never were going to get. You become a missionary like Paul. You go out and go to the hard places of the world where you know in your heart of hearts the Spirit is telling you, man, it's going to be hard over there. And you know what? You'll get opposition from everybody. Family members will tell you, you're crazy. You're dragging your kids out to that country. Don't you know you've got to stay in America? Be safe. Stay here. Don't go out there. There's nothing out there. Yeah, nothing but eternal life. Paul didn't consider his life dear to himself he didn't like the book of revelation he did not love his life unto death what he's saying is he's willing to part with it if that's what god wants and inevitably he did let's not forget i was telling my wife the other day as we're sitting there or somebody i was talking to i said isn't it 
striking that the Apostle Paul, we kind of tend, we forget this, but he lost his head. He lost his head. in the Every time you read the book of Romans, 1 Thessalonians, you're looking, you're reading the words of a man who was beheaded for the faith. Never forget that. Never forget that. The whole purpose is to finish my course, Paul says. The ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And uh, every time this happens, it's persecution and always attends the word. And why does Paul, why does it say that? If you go back to Thessalonians, it says because these are, these are uh, 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 perverse and evil men. He says, for not all have faith. Now, uh, please note, when he says not all have faith, uh, there's a decision that we, need, that we need to make exegetically. When he says not all have faith, does he mean not all have personal faith, as in they don't believe, uh, tantamount to salvation? Or does he mean they don't have the faith, meaning Christianity? Because in the Greek text, ugar panton hey pistis, hey pistis is the faith. And so some commentators have gone that way. He's saying here, not, basically he would be saying something like, not all are of the faith. That's certainly true. But it's also true that not all have faith in the sense of not everybody possesses faith in this message. I think that latter part is right, only because it's set in sort of antithetical parallelism here with God's own character. Notice the wordplay in the text. After saying these men, in a sense, are faithless, God is faithful, right? And so in the same sense that they lack faith in the gospel, God is the perfect faithful one. Now, when persecution arises at the hands of perverse and evil men, because you have to be perverse and you have to be evil to persecute the greatest good, which is the gospel, which is the church. Now, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 to remind us that Whenever this happens, we should never fall prey to the thinking that we are losing and they are winning. You ever feel like that? You ever just look at culture and think, man, it's getting so bad. Can't go anywhere to raise your kids anymore because all this stuff is everywhere. I feel like that increasingly about what's going on with technology. What's going on just morally. And what's going on politically. You know, we all know what's happening. But don't ever get it confused, not even for a moment. There shouldn't even be a smidget of doubt in our minds what reality really is. Church never loses. The world never wins, brothers and sisters. Never, never. Look at Paul. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Now remember, this is Paul writing this from prison. <laughs> so he knows a little bit about opponents. <laughs> he knows a little bit about persecution at this point. Okay, He's under house arrest at this point. And so he knows what it means like to be oppressed and suffer for the gospel's sake. He says, but do not be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign. Now, what is not defined here is, and he says, which is a sign 
of destruction for them. What, what is a sign? He never said what the sign was. He just kind of said, what is, which is a sign? And so the inference is persecution. That's what every commentator says, is that the persecution of the opponents is a sign of destruction for them. Their very opposition to the gospel is a certain indication of their destruction. And, positively, it is also a certain indication of salvation for you. And that, too, from God. Wow! What is that saying? That, too, from God means God has ordained the persecution of the church, but God has also ordained that through a suffering church, through a suffering church, you will be saved. That's God too. This reminds me of the Psalm Asaph. Psalm 73. Turn there with me in your Bibles, please, because we understand heavy-duty, hardcore, high-level persecution, shedding of blood, martyrs. But that's not our everyday experience. We don't experience that every day. The church in other places definitely does. But we don't experience that, but Understand, the Apostle Paul understood both aspects of not just high-level persecution, but also the fact that we're oppressed everywhere we go. Psalm 73 begins to introduce this. You ever think like this when you look out in the world? Verse 12. uh, Psalm is too long to go through the whole thing. (laughs) So we'll start in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, They've increased in their wealth. Jeff Bezos owns half the world now. Hates Christ. You know, Tim Cook, you know, owns half our lives in here. You got an apple? Come on. You got an apple? Give me a break. Also is Antichrist, is homosexual. Why is it always this way? Why is it always that it's always the liberal part of society that owns everything is always at ease, is at top of the food chain. Why? You ever been tempted to think like that? Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. See what it does? You look around at the prosperity of the wicked and the next thing you know you become introverted and you start going inwardly and you start saying, why am I doing all of this? Oh man, that really comes home to us when we go through something. That really comes home to us when we're going through something hard in the church. And then it becomes like, man, I'm getting it from the world and I'm getting it from the church. What's the point of keeping my heart pure? This is a psalmist who's being tempted to think this way. Why do I wash my hands in innocence? For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. In other words, what he's saying is that when I come into God's temple, God's house, God's sanctuary, everything is realigned. All the planets become to be back in orbit. Now I see reality for what it is. Now I understand to see holy 
Godliness is not some sort of payoff for right this second, right? It's just, I'm not pursuing righteousness and holiness. I'm not seeking to grow. I'm not seeking to progress in the things of God because it's kind of going to give me some sort of carnal payback. No, no, that's not the reason I'm doing all. I'm doing all of this is because I want to please God. And the reason I want to please God is because he is God. And God being God can either cast my soul into hell or he can take me into heaven. Now you're starting to see things for what they really are. Okay, once the all the iPads and MacBook Pros that don't work anyway, <laughs> once all that stuff, the iTunes and the, whatever is the latest and greatest things that are out there, once that all the facade, the fashion, the style, the all the all that glitters in this world is moved out, and you come into the sanctuary of God, you are brought into the transcendent, and you remind yourself of why you love Him. And you remind yourself of the depths of the wickedness of man and of their doom. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. i got to use this analogy. You've been hearing what's going on with this college scandal that's going on. You had some actresses, I guess, and they paid under the table, sort of, they laundered money towards these colleges to get their kids into these high Ivy League schools, right? And you know what it was for? Vanity. It's so that at the cocktail party they could say, oh, you know, my daughter's at USC or wherever. Isn't that horrible? Now, one of those actresses, I remember, because I, I don't even remember what she acted in, but I just remember, doesn't she come out in the Hallmark movies and all that? She's usually kind of like the wholesome kind of thing, right? I almost fell out, told Trish, almost fainted the other She's facing 40 years in prison for doing this little slight of, you know, wow, 40 years in prison. You were just walking the red carpet in front of Hollywood the other day. And now you're facing 40 years in prison. See, the judgment of God is just that quick. You'd be skating along this life, thinking everything's fine, just hunky-dory, driving down the street, and next thing you know, boom. And there is no greater terror than the wrath of God. Infinitely more terrifying. I read an article about, about this whole thing, and, and one of these actresses has talked about how terrified she is about the reality of going to prison. She's terrified. She's gripped. She's completely incapacitated, doesn't know what to do. I would be too. But you know what's so remarkable is that why aren't they incapacitated at the wrath of God, which is 10 million times worse than what they're facing here? What a parable. What a parable. Paul understands that in the ministry you're going to face opposition of every kind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, he talks about going to Macedonia where our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side. And this is the phrase I wanted to get to. Conflicts without, fears within. In other words, you can feel trapped, surrounded. Everywhere you look, trouble, trials, Affliction, suffering. In Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, we find out a couple things about Paul. Number one, he had very few friends. Very few friends. 
Matter of fact, he even goes on to say, Timothy, he's the only one that's truly a kindred spirit. What he's saying there is that Timothy's the only guy we can switch out anytime. You take Paul out, put Timothy in, you get the same thing. He's the only one that I have a kin, true kindred spirit with. And so Paul's friends in the ministry were few and far between. Many of them backstabbed and turned their back on them, you know, went back into the world, apostatized, think of Demas. And he said, indeed, Epaphroditus, when he was sick to the point of death, God had mercy on him. He says, not just on him. God had mercy on me too. Why? So that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. It's almost like he's saying like, man, if Epaphroditus would have died, one of the only true avenues of encouragement would have been gone. Sorrow upon sorrow. This backs up the notion, and I know I've been preaching for a while, so I just looked here and I've got about another hour left. I won't do that to you. But I could easily go because the last thing is this, is the reality. The foundation, prayer. The context, opposition, persecution. The reality, spiritual warfare. That's what's at the reality behind the ministry of the word. Let's read again. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it also did with you. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. You've got to believe that. And He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So for Paul, he saw that behind all the opposition, behind all the spiritual danger and all the spiritual hazards that can materialize in the ministry, behind the curtain is the nemesis, Satan himself, the evil one. Trying to scheme, trying to fire his darts, trying to... Uh, cause so division and everything else and therefore paul reminds us in second corinthians chapter 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but they are mighty in god divinely powerful for destroying fortresses and there the word fortresses is literally anything that opposes god anything anything that opposes god The total picture of ministry of the Word, which, boy, like I said, I don't have time to get into all of this, but remember, brothers and sisters, of the privilege that we have in handling God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. You know this verse. Paul says, we have the treasure of the gospel. We have the treasure of the gospel of the glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have the we have that treasure. We have the, the, the indispensable treasure of God's gospel. And it's in this. It's in this weak, frail, sinful, fallen, finite, fallible, earthen vessel. Remember what an earthen vessel is? It's kind of like a cardboard box. You take one box, one box is for honorable use, and you don't dispense with that box because let's say it's a jewelry box. It's valuable. You keep valuable things there. But then there are common boxes like earthen vessels, (laughs) And that's like Tupperware from Walmart. No, no offense if you shop at Walmart and get Tupperware. Okay. But it's like that. They're just cardboard. Boxes. Who cares what you do with cardboard? 
But you could put a million dollars inside cardboard and all of a sudden that cardboard becomes important. (laughs) And so it is, brothers and sisters. You and I are important solely because we contain the treasure of God. And therefore, we can go through it all. We can go through whatever we need to go through because what's at stake is so important. It's so valuable. God is working life through our death. That's what he goes on to say. God is working life through our death. One last passage of Scripture, and then I'll end on this. But turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through 5. I want to remind us, brothers and sisters, of why spiritual warfare is the point I'm ending on. Not only because we have a real adversary, we have a real enemy, the devil, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver, but to, re- to remind you that what we do week in and week out is spiritual. It is spiritual. And I, I tell you, I don't know that I've reached the bottom of that understanding. In other words, I don't know that I've adopted fully the spiritual reality behind what we do here. But Paul reminds us of this very thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, and particularly in the act of proclaiming the word. Because look at what he says. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And he says, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, we'll come back to that, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Now, when he says in the words, the persuasive words of wisdom, you won't understand what Paul's talking about unless you understand what was going on in Corinth. In Corinth, it was, I, we talked about this during apologetics uh, group, but in Corinth, there were these philosophizers, these sophists that would go around and they would preach their message in public squares and they would deliver a certain philosophy or a certain message they wanted to preach or a certain point of view. And they they'd had all these rhetorical devices that they would use, all of this fancy and elaborate, eloquent speech so that by their persuasive tactics, they would garnish a following. What Paul is saying is that We don't have any of that. That's not what we do. It's not rooted in that. You see? It's not based on the eloquence of the preacher. And sadly today, we have fallen prey to thinking eloquence equals biblical. Right? Not so. Not so. It's biblical if it conforms to the doctrine of Christ. That's that's what matters. And so, what Paul is saying here is that opposite of these carnal tactics, we preach Christ. And why is that important? Because if you back up in the chapter earlier, or in chapter 1 earlier, he just got done saying preaching Christ is scandalous. Nobody likes it. The Jews don't like it. The Greeks don't like it. You're preaching the message of a rugged cross and nobody likes it. The culture won't like it. Hollywood won't like it. The politicians are not going to like it. Culture will like it. They won't like you in school. They won't like you at work. They won't like you in your family. Nobody likes it. But it... (laughs) Is that biblical, my wife talking back there like that? (laughs) Pastor Lynn, I give you full 
authority to go and address her. <laughs> That's right. It will, <laughs> it will be unpopular. God wants to make sure that His Word, the ministry of His Word, will be spread and will be glorified by the power of God that resides in the message of the cross. The cross. Okay, that's my message. You know what my exhortations are? Number one, brothers and sisters, we need to love the ministry of the Word of God. We need to love it. Love the ministry of the Word. That's takeaway number one. That's discussion time over dinner or whatever tonight. Number two, you need to love, and I'll add here, prepare for the moment of preaching. Okay? Prepare for the moment of preaching. Prepare your mind. Prepare your heart. Prepare your family. Prepare the kids. Prepare the notebook. Prepare your Bible. Get yourself prepared, even if you've got to prepare your tablet or your phone. Oh, I can't believe I said that. But here I am preaching from a tablet. What a hypocrite. I just like to hear this, you know, out there, but I don't hear that that much anymore because of this wretched technological age that we live in. We've become the silent Christians. <laughs> Number two. Pastor Lynn, Pastor Emilio, deacons, everyone here. Love the centrality of the Word of God. You know I say that? That's tantamount to saying, don't get bored with the Word. Because what happens to these churches? They get bored with the Word. And so they've got to have other stuff going on. So they've got to start using props and they've got to, above everything, you've got to produce Sony quality worship. And above everything, if you don't have that, then you have to start decking out the sanctuary. You need to put Starbucks in the hallway. I mean, I wouldn't mind that, but I'm just saying, you know, I, that's not the aim, the goal. That's not the standard. So what I'm telling us is love the centrality of the word of God. And last of all, love, which means believe, trust, have faith in the sufficiency of the Word of God. Um, sometimes you'll come in a point of ministry where you think the things that you're doing, it's not working. No one's coming. No one's participating. No one's giving. No one's excited about it. Nobody wants to get involved in it. Okay, that could be owing to leadership and, and missteps and things like that. But my thing is this, is this, as long as you know that you're doing it like this, that you're doing it by the book, that you're doing what the Word of God orders, keep doing it even if you don't see results. Keep doing it. It's not changing my kids quick enough. Keep doing it. It's not changing that person's sanctification fast enough. Keep doing it. Right? Church is not growing fast enough. Keep doing it. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, in the end, our works will be tried, and if we don't do it plumb line with the Scriptures, it will burn on that day. You don't want that. I don't want that. And by the grace of God, we will not have that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the grace of Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity 
that we have, as with every generation, every church, every pastor, every congregation, wanted to see what Paul wanted to see. We want to see the Word of God spread rapidly. We want to see the Word of God grow and be glorified. That's a good ambition. Purify us, O God, if we have an ambition other than that. And Lord, would you sanctify us such that if our ambition ever becomes compromised through pragmatism or worldliness, just help us, Lord. Help us to repent and to come back to the biblical foundations of biblical ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.